When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Tortoise. Hello, it's James. It's the week beginning October the 9th. We're here in the Tortoise newsroom in London. Thank you for joining us for the news meeting. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the country is in a war after the Palestinian militant group Hamas launched a surprise dawn offensive. It's our 9-11 and, and from today on, things will never be in Israel as they were. In the last few minutes also, we've had the Israeli Defence Minister coming out and saying that he is ordering a siege on Gaza. I'm joined by Joel Twitell, who is Tortoise's World Affairs Editor. Hello. Hello. And by Basha Cummings. And forgive me, Basha, I'm going to be uh, boastful on your account. Basha just comes fresh from winning the Podcast uh, (laughs) of the Year Award for your investigation, Pig Iron, uh, investigation of the death and life of a war reporter. Yes. That is true. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And by Yasha Munk. Um, There are going to be those people who know you really well, Yasha, because I think you feel uh, to many of us like an unhappy prophet, someone who long before we began worrying about what was going to happen to democracy and the rise of populism said something's coming here. I like to say I'm a democracy crisis hipster. I was worried about the crisis of democracy before it was cool. (laughs) Right. So you had that tattoo. (laughs) But I think that the thing that is interesting is that in some form or other, what felt like it was a fringe study has now become mainstream. And in some ways, what you're now looking at, I think um, you're Johns Hopkins, an international affairs uh, professor and also a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. What's interesting to me now is that new book that you've written on identity. I hope we'll get to that too, because in some ways, you're now weighing into a subject close to our heart, the battle over freedom of speech and freedom of uh, expression. So we're going to come to that. Amazing. But, yes, I hope you'll understand. Normally, when we have these news meetings, what we do is we invite three people to come and pitch different stories. It seems a little eccentric to do that today. Because there's one story, which is evidently dominant. Exactly. And so what we're going to do is something slightly different, which I'm going to just ask everyone to suggest the angle on the story or the perspective that they think will be most helpful in understanding what's really happening in Israel, Uh, either the element that's being undercovered or the element that probably points us in a direction of where we're going. So with that, Charles, why don't you go first? My angle is Iran. Uh, How far 
will Tehran be found to have been behind these attacks and how far will it be in the firing line as a result? Basha? Um, I'd like to talk about Netanyahu, how we got here, how uh, his focus over the last year may have meant that his energies were diverted. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, I, I, I'm an editor of a magazine I founded called Persuasion, and normally what we try to do is to find the surprising angle, the angle that is the non-obvious one. I've been struck in the last 48 hours, but we've ignored the obvious angle, which is the murder, kidnapping, parading of hundreds of civilians uh, across villages and towns, hundreds of people murdered at this music festival uh, where people are out in a rave. And I've just been struck that uh, very few newspaper headlines uh, very little in the mainstream media has really focused on that as an extraordinary war crime that is out of the ordinary for what has happened. So we've moved straight into analysis, or we've moved into sort of both sides' coverage of, you know, Israel fighting back against Gaza militants, uh, kind of headlines that I've been seeing. Let's come back to that, but I'm going to, if I might, just go of to Giles first. The reason for that is I want to know the answer to why. Yeah. Why did this happen? I'd just like to respond immediately to that because I feel like I've spent a good part of yesterday and last night doing two things simultaneously. One is addressing the why question, uh, partly because I knew that I had to write something this morning for our audience um, to, to try and address that. But also at the same time, because it's a rolling news story, details of these attacks are coming out. And personally, I've no doubt that they will come to dominate. I mean, you know, it, it was not clear yesterday morning, what had happened at that festival. It is clear, pretty clear now. Anyway, um, I digress. The question was why, and I think that's intimately related with why now. And there is a, a, a fairly straightforward proximate cause, if you will. Behind the scenes, the Biden administration has been working every angle to build on the Abraham Accords concluded between Israel and the Gulf states in the Trump, during the Trump administration by uh, moving towards the great prize of normalization of relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia, partly to isolate Iran in the region. Uh, those, if, you, if you're asking why now, those talks were progressing uh, and Hamas leadership in the Gaza Strip uh, regarded them as the latest in a series of developments that tended towards uh, abandoning the Palestinian cause and them specifically uh, effectively imprisoned in Gaza since 2007 when they took complete control of, of the Gaza Strip. And George, can you just explain that? Is the thinking then that if you are in Hamas, if the UAE, Morocco, then Saudi, all in effect line up to say we've made peace with Israel, mm -hmm. that in effect the cause of the Palestinian state displacing the state of Israel is lost. And final nail in the coffin of two-state solution. And if... No, but they're not fighting for the two-state solution. Hamas is fighting for the eradication of the state of Israel. Yes, and, and the thinking uh, is that if you can provoke Israel now into the kind of response that the Gulf states and Saudi can't live with, then you derail the process of normalization. And you realign the Arab states behind Hamas and behind a 
a a more hardline Palestinian position. Right, and we're not at that point yet, but already since Saturday morning, Saudi, you know, Riyadh, for example, has come out with um, effectively precisely the sort of statement that Hamas will be wanting. That they've spoken about repeated warnings that they have made about continued occupation, key word, and deprivation uh, of Palestinians of their legitimate rights. So, Basha, why do you think this has happened now? Russia's relationship with Iran is relevant here because Putin can see that huge Western support for Ukraine could be potentially diverted if Israel becomes involved in a long-term war in Gaza and in the region. So, you know, there's only so many Patriot missiles to go around. Could that then have an effect there? So I think there is a sort of domino effect that over the next few days and weeks will start to peel back the layers of sort of geopolitics. Yeah, should you have a view on why it's happened now? Well, I mean, I think certainly um, the attempt to scupper the Abraham Accords is is, is a part of this. Um, I mean, Hamas is uh, has very, very, very close links with the theocratic regime in Iran. Um, and uh, both Iran and Hamas are saying that they coordinated on this. The Biden administration so far has tried to deny this, in part because the Biden administration has just uh, uh, sent a lot of money indirectly to Iran and concluded to deal with them, and it's very inconvenient for them politically to admit that there seems to have been cooperation. But uh, you know, if, if Iran and Hamas are saying that they've cooperated, there's no real reason to think that they haven't. Um, so, so there's that part of a background as well. There is a story where, um, you know, Hamas has always had the will to inflict those kind of civilian casualties. It is an extremist organization. Um, and Israel has taken the eye of a ball a little bit, um, coming to think that the, the, the situation of Gaza Strip seemed to be under control. That obviously uh, ended the occupation in 2005, and there hadn't been these massive attacks. And so um, clearly, those failings in the Israeli security service, uh, there was many fewer soldiers in the southern part of Israel. And so part of it must be that Hamas rightly assessed that they had an opportunity for an unprecedented attack and atrocity that perhaps 10 or 5 years ago they may not have been able to carry out. And Charles, what's the domestic calculation by Hamas? I can't get into the heads of, of the Hamas planners who launched this on Saturday morning, knowing the retribution would be uh, as uh, powerful as experience leads them, will have led them to conclude it would be. Um, only the two further points on the timing um, domestically. Um, they will have known that throughout the summer of protests against the extremely right-wing coalition, the traditional solidarity between uh, the Israeli armed forces and the government has been strained. You've had um, many, many stories of uh, particularly Air Force officers publicly siding with uh, progressives against against the government. Uh, but but also, uh, as Yasha was suggesting, uh, many fewer soldiers in the south precisely because uh, they have been redeployed to um, new settlements on the West Bank. And uh, uh, and Reuters is reporting this morning as well that that, that Hamas are claiming a uh, a triumph of um, deception by uh, actively persuading Israeli intelligence that 
they were not really up for a big fight, even while they were training for one mm. in front of their very eyes behind the border. I think that's the point that Thomas Frieden made in the New York Times, that, that the assumption was that they just would never dare to go there mm-hmm. on this kind of scale. Let's just take, Yasha, your point about war crimes, because there's a risk that we do what so much of the media do, which is we analyze and abstract and don't stop and pay attention to what's actually happening there. So war crimes over and above terrorism means something specific. What do you itemize as the examples of war crimes in this case? Well, there's a huge difference between the deliberate targeting of civilians and the targeting of legitimate military targets in which civilians will, despite your best efforts, sometimes be collateral damage. There's many things to criticize about uh, uh, Israeli government policy. Uh, There's many things to criticize about uh, Bibi Netanyahu. And there's many things to criticize about the settlements in the West Bank and so on. Uh, But we're seeing even as retaliation to an attack on Israel on a scale, as some people have said, that combines Pearl Harbor and 9-11 and per capita has killed more Israelis than 9-11 did, has uh, very clearly tried to adhere to those principles, warning civilians who live in buildings that house the command of Hamas uh, to leave those buildings before uh, they are attacked. Uh, What we saw at the beginning of this conflict is uh, uh, um, thousands of fighters crossing the border um, and finding civilian families and killing little children in front of their siblings. So what happens, you know, when you mentioned right at the beginning, how do we focus on what's really happening there on these war crimes? I was sort of dragged back to an old argument, particularly in the UK, about the use of the word terrorists and terrorism. Actually, this is something that goes way beyond, if you like, just terrorism. Presumably for those war crimes to be realized, they need to be documented and prosecuted That's an element in this story that at the moment, when it's moving so fast, is very hard to do. I don't know whether you see any evidence of it happening. I I, I don't know exactly. I mean, I assume that there's, in this day and age, a lot of social media uh, evidence and everybody has a phone that has a video camera where the people who are being targeted in this way uh, take out a video camera to film is a different question. I'm sure there'll be plenty of evidence in one way or another for some of these. Um, But I think the point is simply to dwell on this. I mean, what we did after 9-11 was to print the faces of people who'd been killed on the front pages of newspapers. It was to, of course, call people uh, who were acting in, 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 in furtherance of a political cause terrorists because they had deliberately uh, targeted and killed civilians in furtherance of their political cause and in order to instill fear in the enemy, which is, in my mind, the definition of terrorism. Basha, what do you think about Yash's point overall, which is this element of the story, the horror of the story that Hamas has perpetrated on Israel is not, it may seep through on social media but doesn't land on mainstream media. Mm. Is that your experience the weekend? I'm not sure it's mine. To be it, wasn't, I, it wasn't my, I mean, I felt, you know, throughout Saturday as I started to read more and engage, I think, you know, I found out along with everyone else as the news started dripping out. It was only until 
I think it was only last night that we heard the number of 260 bodies found at that rave in the desert. So I think the horror has been sort of slow to dawn. Yeah, sure. Let me ask you a different question, because it sounds like you and I probably see this in very similar ways. What do you say to people who say, yes, Yasha, there are war crimes happening here. Yes, the treatment of these people is terrible. But can we go back over years and decades of treatment of people who live in Gaza? And if you don't allow for that context, you'll not understand what's happening here because you talk about, or I've talked about, this as an unprovoked attack. No, it was provoked. It was provoked by years of experience in Gaza. What do you say to people who say that element of this story is not being told within the context of the last 48 hours? Well, I actually, the newspapers I've been looking at have been telling that context over and over while not showing the pictures of the people being being kidnapped and 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 murdered to the same extent. But is that um, right? just on the specific story? Because I, when I looked at the Washington Post or the New York Times, I would say, as far as possible, and of course it's been an unfolding story, but as far as possible, they've been reporting what's been happening on the ground in the last forty-eight hours. But they've been reporting on what's been happening, but I don't think that they have succeeded in conveying the gravity of what happened in a way that five minutes, I, I really am very concerned about what Elon Musk, Elon Musk has made of what I continue to call Twitter. Um, uh, but five minutes on that platform, you get a sense. I'm going to move on to Bash's point because I feel as though all of the answers to the questions that most worry me sit with Netanyahu. I hope I will have some of those answers. <laughs> so, hi, Bar. I mean, the thing that I want to talk about is because a few weeks ago or a few months ago now, I came and pitched as the lead story the protest movement in Israel um, and the response to the reforms that uh, Netanyahu wanted to make to the judiciary. And, you know, I, I, I guess in this context, I tried to think about, so Netanyahu has made this... Uh, formed a government which relies on these parties from the far right. Those parties have supported increasing uh, aggression by Israeli settlers in the West Bank. So that has, uh, you know, taken up focus. It's also moved resources. Um, army forces have been diverted to the West Bank. Um, and a lot of people are saying that that, that was that focus weakened the defences around Gaza. Um and not only in a sort of practical sense, but also in a societal sense, there was a, there has been a sort of breaking up of Israeli society in the sense that um, not only have lots of senior military and intelligence figures criticised Netanyahu's plans for the reforms, um, but those who kind of came out, the head of Shin Bet, um, which is the Israeli domestic intelligence service, warned Netanyahu earlier this year that the attacks by settlers on Palestinians would increase the security threat to Israel. Uh, but he was denounced. One uh, Likud member of parliament said that this was just the ideology of the left, um, that the deep state had infiltrated the leadership of uh, Shin Bet and the IDF. So any concerns about where Netanyahu's focus were in terms of the broader security situation were sort of brushed away, it seems. Um and what's extraordinary, as I was reading yesterday, you know, there's been a lot made of, of what an intelligence failure this is. A billion dollars has been pumped into building that border wall around Gaza. Um, and the fact that, what are we now, 48 hours after um, this attack, it seems like there are still Hamas militants coming through, the, through that border. Seems extraordinary. But 
you know, when you think of this is this is a country that um, has Pegasus, mm-hmm. that you know the the the, the sophistication of, of the intelligence we've been told that uh, you know that, that there are informants within Hamas cells in Gaza that you know that the level of surveillance is has never been so sophisticated and yet this seems to have come as a complete surprise I think that won't fail to come for Netanyahu particularly given where he's spent the last year um, focusing and Basha what do you think given that Netanyahu is talking about this as a war and a long war what does winning look like? I think that's, I mean, it's an emotional question as much as it is a practical one. So the the, the practical options that are available to him, we can, you know, you can talk about further airstrikes, you can talk about a major ground offensive with armoured divisions going into Gaza, the practicalities of that, the density of the population there, the huge civilian cost, that will, you know, that, that will have to be a calculation that they make. Um, then there's, you know, the possibility of kind of small operations that just target Hamas. That's another option. But I think the question of what does winning look like is an emotional one is where does where does Israel feel that it can go next? There was this huge progressive protest movement that seemed to be moving in a different direction. And is this moment what Netanyahu's government in some ways been waiting for this moment to justify a, a complete restructuring of how they see the country and its relationship in the region. Charles, militarily, going back to your original point about Iran, is it almost inevitable that Israel ends up in a war south and north, i.e. Gaza, but also dealing with Hezbollah in Lebanon? And if that's the case, does it even conceivably spill into direct strikes on Iran? Hezbollah has already made clear that a ground invasion would and would be followed rapidly by heavy attacks, we presume initially rocket attacks, into northern Israel. And in fact, there have been reports of such attacks uh, already. Uh, if it is proven, as the Wall Street Journal was reporting late last night, that this attack was essentially greenlit by Iran or by the Quds Force um, in Beirut last Monday, then the idea of direct Israeli attacks on Iranian targets can't can't be ruled out. Let's take a beat and then let's come back in a moment, try and look at the other angles on this. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, let's just take a detour from Israel for a moment. Yes, you know, I said at the beginning that you are or have been the unhappy 
profit hmm. of uh, democracy in the world, by which I meant that, you know, nearly 10 years ago now, you started warning about populism, the erosion of public confidence in democratic governments. And these days, that feels like it's everywhere. You know, the story about the retreat of democracy across a huge swathe of Africa, countries that were democratic, mm. now uh, controlled by dictators, chaos in Congress, January the 6th, really deep doubts about the way in which the media itself has embraced the idea of freedom of speech, um, but possibly at the expense of old commitments to truth and accountability. This sense of a world on fire, and at the heart of it, perhaps people genuinely questioning whether or not democracy works, i.e. can democratic governments make decisions in the long term, and do democratic governments naturally reward elites at the expense of the masses? Has your view of whether or not democracy works changed? Uh, I, I mean, it has been uh, updated in various ways over the last 10 years. What, what I find striking is that, you know, I, I made my name warning about these things when I was a graduate student and, uh, you know, the senior members of my department at the time, so it's always a clever little argument, and very interesting, <laughs> but I mean, really, come on, you know, <laughs> how can you truly be worried about democracy in a place like France or the United States? And, uh, you know, my argument was that when I was taking these survey courses and comparative politics, people were saying, you know, of course, those countries in Africa might have their democracies fail because they're not very affluent. These democratic institutions are not that well consolidated, as political scientists say. But, you know, in countries that are affluent, like Britain or France or the United States, and countries that have had a number of changes of government for free and fair elections, it's sort of silly to worry about this. They are really safe. And I thought that the signs that these democracies really were beyond danger weren't really there anymore, and that perhaps we should worry. That didn't mean that I thought they were sure to collapse or that we were definitely sort of heading for Armageddon. Um, I think most democratic uh, systems work relatively well. Um, Liberal democracies around the world are the most affluent and peaceful places in the world and some of the most affluent, certainly, and peaceful places in the history of the world. When you look at whose uh, country's citizens um, do best on the Human Development Index, have the most uh, opportunity to develop their talents and interests, when you look at which countries people around the world want to migrate to, these are all democracies. So I think there's a lot worth defending. And, and I don't want to overstate uh, the alarmism. I think there's a real risk that these systems might collapse. And that's something we should be very, very, very concerned about. But I don't in any way think it's a foregone conclusion. And sometimes in the public debate now, I find myself to be the relative optimist because some people talk as though, you know, uh, uh, democracy is already doomed to failure. And what are states. the risks? Well, the risk certainly in a place like the United States is that an authoritarian populist, uh, in this case Donald Trump, comes to power and undermines the key elements of our political system. The, the defining feature of a populist is that it's somebody who claims that they and they alone truly represent the people and by, that by virtue of that, any opposition to them, any independent media coverage, any institution that... Uh, restrains their power, as is always the case in a functioning democracy, is illegitimate. Um, and if Trump comes back in 2024, he is somebody who is much angrier now than he was in 2016. 
has recognized that there are institutions constraining his power and that he doesn't like that much more than he had at the beginning of his presidency in 2016. It was a kind of gradual process of discovery. Has much more consolidated control over the Republican Party than he did eight years ago and has a, a number of loyalists who've gained real executive experience over the course of the first four years of his presidency. So I think the damage done to potentially the world, but certainly American political institutions in a second uh, Trump presidency would likely be significantly worse than it was in the first. And then, Yasha, can you then just explain this new book, The Identity Trap? Because some people will, who, if you like, fans of yours, will look at it and go, I don't understand this. Yasha Munk was supposed to be the guy who was to the barricades, defending democracy from populism. And now, if I read it right, you're saying, actually, the risk with identity politics is that it damages the people who themselves feel discriminated against. And actually, we may have something to learn from from those people who, you know, wrap themselves in the flag of freedom of speech and are taking on, if you like, the uh, campaigners for so-called work politics? Well, first of all, I mean, I find it a strange formulation. You know, those people who wrap themselves in the flag of freedom of speech, free speech has been a left-wing value for centuries. It's something that everybody from liberals like John Stuart Mill to a great African-American activist like uh, uh, Frederick Douglass uh, have embraced. Frederick no, no, sorry. The reason, why, the reason why I use the phrase wrap themselves in the flag is because, of course, everyone believes in freedom of speech. What you don't believe in is using the idea of freedom of speech to justify freedom from fact, being able to sure. make arguments that are just untruthful. But there's something strange has happened over the last 10 years, which is that because some people have insincerely uh, invoked free speech, uh, the left has allowed it to become coded as a right-wing value. And there are many denunciations of free speech on the left now, explicit denunciations of free speech. Um, and that, I think, is part of this genuine ideological change, which I oppose on principle, because I think it is giving up on some of the basic ideas and principles that have allowed our societies to flourish, and because I think that it is a big uh, political mistake. So to go back to the broader question, I've written two books, uh, BBC Radio 4 series, uh, you know, hundreds of newspaper articles and op-eds and, and, and essays uh, warning about the danger of right-wing populism. And as is clear from my comments about Donald Trump, I remain very concerned about it. But I cannot write another damn article about Donald Trump and I cannot write <laughs> another damn book about how terrible he is. There's plenty of people who've done that and that's great. But I think we've now understood what there is to be understood about those topics in important ways. And at the same time, I've observed over the last decade something that I found to be very intellectually interesting, which is uh, a new set of ideas about race and gender and sexual orientation that have very quickly become dominant um, in universities, in many newspapers and media institutions, and have started to have real influence in businesses and religious organizations. And uh, you know, as somebody who is trained in this country as an intellectual historian, um, I think that this is a genuinely novel ideology, which is actually in direct uh, contrast and conflict with many historical traditions of the left. So I, I, I thought perhaps it would be interesting to write about something new and learn something new. And so I did a lot of work reading this tradition and so on. What is it? What is this new intellectual tradition? Um, so, you know, I avoid that label because it is so polarizing, but it is broadly speaking the set of ideas that are often called work. Um, 
the way I define it philosophically in the last part of the book, and I also sort of trace the themes of it, but, but I think one way of reducing it is to say that the core ideas tend to be, number one, that race, gender, and sexual orientation tend to be the key prisms for understanding society. Not just that they're important ones to understand, but they're really the key way to understand most personal interactions, historical events, uh, political developments. Secondly, that universal uh, values and neutral principles that have historically structured our society aren't just hypocritical in the sense that we fail to live up to them, which is surely true, but rather that they actually are meant to pull the wool over your eyes, that the purpose of those kind of uh, rules and values is to uh, cloak how society really operates and actually perpetuate uh, forms of uh, discrimination. And therefore, thirdly, uh, that in order to make real progress, because as people like Derek Bell, the founder of critical race theory, claim, we've made no progress on race in the United States in this case, but 200 years ago or 150 years ago, America was as racist as it is now, but in 2020, in the year 2000, America remained as racist as it had been in the past, which is something I consider offensive, not to the great Americans living today, but to the people who suffered much worse outrages in, 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 in the past. And so therefore, the only way to make progress is to abolish those neutral rules and universal values and make how we treat each other and how the state treat all of us explicitly depend on the kind of intersection of identities at which we stand. Now, I can see the allure of this, right? I mean, there's clearly real injustices that persist on all of these counts. Um, democratic politics is always a little bit frustrating. Max Weber has called it the slow boring of hard boards, even when you're making Sorry, progress. the slow boring of? The slow boring of hard boards. <laughs> so, you know, even when you're making progress, it's incomplete and it's slow and it's frustrating. Uh, and so I see why a lot of people um, have seen this lure of an ideology that says, let's remake everything and, 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 and genuinely uh, uh, get rid of these injustices. Now, I think it's a trap. Uh, it's a trap in ways that have become very obvious in the last five or ten years, I think. You've seen many progressive institutions adopt these norms, inspired by these ideas, and uh, uh, it made it much harder for them to actually serve their important missions. Many of them had these big internal meltdowns and fights that made them dysfunctional. Well, even by my standard, this is quite a detour. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but an interesting one. But, but a, a really, one. really useful one. And actually, I'm going to just kind of root back, though, to, um, well, Israel's strong man. He would have it that way. Netanyahu. So I'm going to finish, mm -hmm. though, with, uh, with Israel. And the reason, Bashar, I just want to come back to this is I said to you that I'm most frightened and I look to answer it in understanding what Netanyahu does next. And the reason I'm frightened is, I suppose for most of my adult life, there's essentially been an argument within Israel between two-state solution and status quo. Right. Status quo, which is effectively the Netanyahu strategy, was we play for time. The longer the state of Israel exists, the more entrenched it becomes, the less likely we're going to get to a permanent surrender of territory and we're going to establish a secure state of Israel. That, that although it's been hard sometimes to understand Netanyahuism, that's what it's come to feel. And Oslo and two-state solution obviously feels like something in the past in that context. Now I don't know what Israel aims for because I can't see an Israeli politician getting the support of its own public 
in the short term militarily or in the medium term politically on a status quo politics. Let's just leave Gaza and the West Bank to do their thing and we will rub alongside next to each other. That feels like an extremely insecure position. And so I wonder, and I asked you what does winning look like, but I really wonder whether you've seen or read or heard anything that gives you a sense of what the new Israeli mindset will be in terms of finding a long-term answer to how it lives with Palestinians. The big question which you've identified is, will they tolerate living alongside Hamas in the Gaza Strip? Whether that can continue is is the question. It would seem like not. That, 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 that ceding control to Hamas there is no longer an option. So that that is a very small uh, answer to your question. In the bigger sense, I also don't know. I mean, I started, I sort of, you know, came of age as an adult at university. I went to SOAS, which anyone who knows it will know is, you know, <laughs> very punchy when it comes to Israel-Palestine. I took, you know, I remember taking a course over two years about the Middle Eastern conflicts. And the, that question has always been alive in, for my generation, which is ha- that there is no solution at the moment. There is a status quo which is being maintained. This is obviously post-2006, 2007. So I've never seen... That question of where it goes next, what's the solution, has never been sort of a particularly live one for me because it seems like it's always been intractable. Charles? The only time I've been to Gaza was in 2005, just before Ariel Sharon pulled Israel out. And I went to the beach and met a recent arrival from Brooklyn who said when I asked him why he was there, because I dream of a greater Israel that includes here, the beach in Gaza, the Golan Heights, and the West Bank. And when you ask uh, where does it go from here, and if we stipulate that two-state solution is history, the status quo has just been found to be unsustainable. I think you're right to be frightened because I don't know where else you go, because there are a lot of people in Israel who have for the past 15 years wanted that greater Israel and who want it even more now. But that is clearly uh, a non-starter as well because of Israel's neighbors. Yasha. Yeah, it is very hard to see where, where the region goes from there. One of the things to watch will be the future of Israeli democracy because Netanyahu um, obviously is uh, deeply unpopular among about 50% of the population. Um, He is now weakened uh, because he is politically responsible uh, for the biggest security failure um, in probably the history of the state of Israel. Uh, and at the same time, there will be a rally around the flag effect to some extent. Um, and he uh, now has the excuse of a genuinely threatening war to uh, pull there as levers to, 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 to sustain and, and, and entrench his position. So, um, you know, not the most important thing right now, given all of the other stakes. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's also going to be a perilous time for the for sustaining you know Israel's democracy. I'm going to not do what we normally do at the end of a news meeting, which is kind of rank stories. There is only one story, but I think sometimes news meetings end up with a, in a good spot, which is what do we not know now? 
What we don't know now feels to me two central things. One is the extent to which Iran was involved, what was the organization and motivation behind the Hamas attacks. And the second thing is we don't know now how Netanyahu's government and in discussion with the Biden administration are going to frame what the aim of this war is, what their military objectives are, and what their long-term intentions are. Those feel to me like the two things uh, that you need to try and figure out now. We'll be back, obviously, at the end of this week to talk about how this story develops, but also the other stories. It's a big week uh, in the UK. Um, the Labour Party conference is in swing in Liverpool. We'll get a chance to talk about all those things, I hope, uh, if you listen in at the end of the week. But for now, um, Basha Cummings, thank you for joining thank us. Thank you. Charles Wattel, thank you. Thank you. Yasha Munk, a big thank you to you on your whistle-stop tour through London. My pleasure. Um, I hope people will pick up the identity trap, and I suspect you will engage in some quite meaningful conversations about it. People have strong feelings uh, about that subject, as they have about everything that you've written about. But Yasha, thank you. Thank you. For being here. Thank you for listening. Have a very good week. Tortoise. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.